Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and your ways are higher than our ways. Would you draw our hearts and minds to them this morning through the power of the gospel? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I feel somewhat conflicted about Lent, um, and rightly so. You know, my, my Protestant blood runs pretty thick and hot. Uh, you know, Lent, and brace yourself, this is going to be a, a small history excursion, all right? But Lent is a 40-day season, and the liturgical calendar emerges during the days of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. So think 4th century. And after Constantine, we find Lent as a standard season of the church in preparation for Easter. But what was it all about? And I think this is part of Lent's history in the early church that is often forgotten. You see, Lent was linked to baptism. The 40-day period began as a spiritual and theological training period for adult converts who were preparing themselves for baptism on the Easter vigil. These converts, they were in church every day. They were under the tutelage of the bishop as they learned the faith and readied themselves for their adult baptism. So the focus during this period really was not primarily on the suffering and death of our Savior as a model of our own self-denial. Rather, the focus of Lent was on a new believer's union with Christ. Baptism would be a baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus so that the believer's identity was completely and totally shaped by his or her union with, with Jesus. So put in our terms today, Lent was primarily a season for focused discipleship that provided new converts to Jesus a season to pray and to study and to come to terms with what it meant to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. I think there's something very rich about that tradition. Nothing is more important than our identity in Christ. And Lent provides us a season to help new believers and old believers reflect on their baptism, their being brought into union with Christ. But in time, right, and with the broad sweep of Christianity across Europe, most members of the church had been baptized as infants. You know, so the need for adult uh, preparation of this sort became less and less necessary. I think also the link between baptism and Lent got lost during this historical and religious movement of the church. Lent becomes a season of imposed fasting and ritual, and it ran the real risk of distorting the season into a means of, of currying favor with God or, I don't know, a spiritual brownie badge. Um, now, admittedly, I have to say this is a very broad brushstroke of Lent, but there was a reason why certain figures in the Reformation period bristled at Lenten disciplines. You know, they warned Christians against their abuse. Calvin, for example, he encourages believers to distance themselves from any superstitious understanding of this season. And he also warns them against viewing Lenten disciplines as a means of meriting or currying any grace. And Calvin, rightly so to my mind, he also spoke against Lenten disciplines as a badge of honor or a means to, to spiritual pride. I, I knew someone who would give up chocolate, you know, for every Lent. And all through Lent, you know, all they talked about was you know, not eating chocolate. And I, I just remember thinking, let's just go eat some right now so we can stop talking about this. 
So I, I don't mean to throw you a curveball this morning if you're already deep into your Lenten fast, because if properly understood, and if you are aware of the real dangers and dragons attendant to these Lenten disciplines, then a season like this one, a season of fasting or taking on some spiritual discipline can be a great gift as you take time to, to recalibrate and repent again toward Jesus in light of your baptism. Well, Jenelette, why the long throat clearing here about Lent? You know, thanks for the history lesson, but how about get to the Bible? Well, you see, that's, that's just the point. Every first Sunday in Lent across the Christian world begins with a reading from one of the Gospels about Jesus' fasting and temptation in the wilderness. I believe the primary liturgical decision for this move is because Jesus provides an example for us of self-denial and fasting that we too might emulate him. Okay, I'm all right with that reading of these texts, as long as the dragons are identified and there are real dragons. Remember, if we are left on autopilot, we become quite religious, and I don't think God likes that very much. But the trial of Jesus is about so much more than providing for us an example to follow in Lent. I know we describe this text as the temptation of Jesus by the devil, and it is that. But I think the larger perspective is that Jesus is being tested by God in this narrative. Within Matthew's gospel, Jesus is, and, and you may have noticed this before, Jesus is really still dripping wet and while he's being driven into the wilderness. He's dripping wet from his baptism. And if you've noticed in the reading, it says, and the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That's a very important phrase. The Spirit did this. In other words, Jesus had a destined meeting with the devil. It is God who is orchestrating these events and causing the stars to align so that Jesus can have this defining encounter with the devil. I don't know if you've thought about this before in reading the Gospels, but Jesus' ministry from beginning to end always ranges near the forces of darkness. They're always present. I don't know if you had the stomach or courage to work your way through Mel Gibson's The Passion, which came out many years ago. But there's a serpentine, dark figure, the devil, that's always lurking in the shadows. You remember this? He's always there and just sort of in the crowd or somewhere there. I, that actually gets to something. But one theologian says Jesus will frequently encounter demons again. He'll never be at a safe distance from that kingdom of darkness. He'll always be on that frontier. And eventually, we think the cross, he'll be within that kingdom. But already at the outset, here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is brought into confrontation and encounter with the devil. The chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel ends this way, with the father audibly affirming his son. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Not wanting to be cute, but the father has just announced to the world that that's my boy. And the devil wants to find out how far Jesus is willing to take the advantages that he has as God's son. So the devil tempts Jesus while the father is testing him. Now when you hear these words, uh, son of God, uh, predicated on Jesus, we do well to think of his divinity. I know it's the mystery of the ages. 
and I know that a satisfactory explanation of it for our simple minds will, will always really be beyond us. And this is the kind of stuff that makes our heads begin to spin. But with the church universal, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, think of it, the, the, the man that kicked up dust on those Palestine roads, that man is fully God and fully man at the same time. So yes, son of God language speaks to Jesus' divinity. Uh, I remember the old Stephen Colbert um, had the skeptical New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman on his show, who doesn't believe that Jesus was really divine. He just thought that that was a mythopoetic construction of the early church, part of their, their, uh, their own theological devisings. And I, I'll never forget um, Stephen Colbert asking Mr. Ehrman, Sir, what do you call the son of a duck? Answer, it's a duck. Therefore, it was funny in the moment. <laughs> so the title, Son of God, has something to say about Jesus' humanity too, not just his divinity. Do you know that Israel in the Old Testament is called the Son of God or God's firstborn son? Think Exodus chapter 4. Tell them, Moses, to let my firstborn son go. Why? So that he may worship me. Or I'm going to take their firstborn son. Jesus as son of God, fully God and fully man, takes on the identity of Israel to be Israel for God and to be Israel for the world. It's not an accident that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. Does that number and place sound familiar to you? Israel wandered in the, in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And why were they there? in the wilderness. Well, Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 8, verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these whole 40 years. Why? So that he might humble you. And here's the key part. So that he might test you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Israel was being tested by God in the wilderness to see what was in their hearts. And if you remember in the narratives of Numbers and Exodus, it didn't go so well. In fact, they made a hash out of the whole thing, grumbling and complaining from beginning to end, a leader's nightmare for Moses. I mean, God even had to send snakes one time just to get their attention. And what's Jesus doing in Matthew chapter 4? He's reliving the wilderness wanderings of Israel. He takes that experience onto his own shoulders. And guess what God's doing? God's testing him to see what is really in his heart. And the devil wants to find out too. Did you notice in the reading how each temptation begins? If you are the son of God. And so the devil challenges Jesus in three different ways. And every one of them is testing and pressing on the ambition of Jesus Christ. Will Jesus claim his messianic rights in his way, or will he yield himself to the will of his Father? So what's the first testing? You can see it in your worship guides. Turn the rocks into bread. This is a testing of whether or not Jesus is going to trust in the provision of his Father or not. No, I'll rely on God's word, Satan, not on the exercise of my own power. It is interesting, isn't it, that by the end of the temptation narratives, God is serving Jesus a banquet. Again, this is God's timing, not 
uh, Jesus's per se. The second temptation then tests Jesus to see if he exists to serve the Father or if the Father exists to serve the Son. Throw yourself down, Jesus. But Jesus won't do it. He won't put God to the test. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? One theologian says, he will, that is, Jesus will dare leap off into the abyss. He will leap into the cross when the will of God leads him to it. But what would have led him to it here would have been his own will to make use of God in his own favor. I mean, Jesus is willing to leap, but it's going to be on God's time and in God's way. What we see with Jesus in this second temptation, no self-glorification, no temptation to affirm his own self-importance, completely yielded to the will of the Father. And then the third temptation has to do with the fact that the Messiah in the Old Testament would have universal dominion. And what does Satan say? I'm going to give it to you right now. You can have it, Jesus. No cross, no suffering, no difficult earthly ministry, no betrayal. Just worship me and you can have it all. Boy, by the third temptation, the devil's let his guard down, hasn't he? He's completely dropped it. And Jesus counters with the very heart of a Christian's existence. This is what he says. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This was a simple choice of allegiance. Who are you going to worship, and who are you going to serve, Jesus? Now, if you look back in the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, the history of Jesus, the history of Israel attests to the fact that Israel failed at the third temptation again and again, following after other gods. But here Jesus emerges from the wilderness completely exhausted and completely victorious. Where Israel had failed, Jesus succeeds and he exceeds, and he does so in spades. And what do you see by the end of Matthew's gospel? Jesus standing on the far side of his death and his resurrection, yielded to the Father. And what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. All the authority that Satan offers him here at the beginning of the gospel is now, by the end of Matthew's gospel, fully and completely in the hands of Jesus, given to him by the Father. All authority on heaven and earth. And how did Jesus get such authority? Because he entered into the will of his Father as the Son of God, and was obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. So what about you and me? Well, as you enter into Lent, taking this season for what it is, as a time for reflection and repentance, can you do so, might I do so, in light of this simple and important gospel truth? The calling of God's people to be his people has been accomplished in, yes, the death of Jesus Christ. But it's also been accomplished in his life. He lived for you. He obeyed for you. He confronted Satan for you. God tested Jesus to see what was in his heart. And what did he find there? It was perfect. It was clean, pure, no guile lacking any selfish ambition, 
completely yielded to the will of his Father? I can promise you right now, if Jesus looks into my heart, it's not going to look like that. But here again, we see the link between Lent and baptism. What does Paul say? It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. You're baptized. You're brought into union with Jesus by faith in him. Now listen, that doesn't take away from your real life battles and struggles in this pilgrimage of faith. Your own real battles with the devil, the world, and the flesh. I don't mean to minimize those at all. But it does shape the way in which we encounter those struggles. And how do you encounter them? In union, in safety, with the one who went into the wilderness. He faced Satan and he emerged victorious for you and for me. You're safe in him. He's won for you. He's overcome temptation for you. And in this season of Lent, as we recalibrate, let that gospel truth draw your heart to him in worship and in repentance. Amen.